we continue with the dissenting opinion in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard College, beginning with Part 2 of the opinion. Part 2 The court today stands in the way of respondents' commendable undertaking and entrenches racial inequality in higher education. The majority opinion does so by turning a blind eye to these truths and overruling decades of precedent, content for now to disguise its ruling as an application of established law and move on. As Justice Thomas puts it, Grutter is, for all intents and purposes, overruled. It is a disturbing feature of today's decision that the court does not even attempt to make the extraordinary showing required by stare decisis. The court simply moves the goalposts, upsetting settled expectations and throwing admissions programs nationwide into turmoil. In the end, however, it is clear why the court is forced to change the rules of the game to reach its desired outcome. Under a faithful application of the court's settled legal framework, Harvard and UNC's admissions programs are constitutional and comply with Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Section A. Answering the question whether Harvard's and UNC's policies survive strict scrutiny under settled law is straightforward both because of the procedural posture of these cases and because of the narrow scope of the issues presented by Petitioner Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., or SFFA. These cases arrived at this court after two lengthy trials. Harvard and UNC introduced dozens of fact witnesses, expert testimony, and documentary evidence in support of their admissions programs. SFFA, by contrast, did not introduce a single fact witness and relied on the testimony of two experts. After making detailed findings of fact and conclusions of law, the district courts entered judgment in favor of Harvard and UNC. The First Circuit affirmed in the Harvard case, finding no error in the district court's thorough opinion. SFFA then filed petitions for a writ of certiorari in both cases, which the court granted. The court granted certiorari on three questions. One, whether the court should overrule Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher. Or alternatively, two, whether UNC's admissions program is narrowly tailored. And three, whether Harvard's admissions program is narrowly tailored. Answering the last two questions, which call for application of settled law to the facts of these cases, is simple. Deferring to the lower court's careful findings of fact and credibility determinations, Harvard and UNC's policies are narrowly tailored. Section B. 1. As to narrow tailoring, the only issue SFFA raises in the UNC case is that the university cannot use race in its admissions process because race-neutral alternatives would promote UNC's diversity objectives. That issue is so easily resolved in favor of UNC 
that SFFA devoted only three pages to it at the end of its 87-page brief. The use of race is narrowly tailored unless workable and available race-neutral approaches exist, meaning race-neutral alternatives promote the institution's diversity goals and do so at tolerable administrative expense. Narrow tailoring does not mean perfect tailoring. The court's precedents make clear that narrow tailoring does not require exhaustion of every conceivable race-neutral alternative, nor does it require a university to choose between maintaining a reputation for excellence or fulfilling a commitment to provide educational opportunities to members of all racial groups. As the district court found after considering extensive expert testimony, SFFA's proposed race-neutral alternatives do not meet those criteria. All of SFFA's proposals are methodologically flawed because they rest on terribly unrealistic assumptions about the applicant pools. For example, as to one set of proposals, SFFA's expert unrealistically assumed that all of the top students in the candidate pools he used would apply, be admitted, and enroll. In addition, some of SFFA's proposals force UNC to abandon its holistic approach to college admissions, a result in deep tension with the goal of educational diversity as this court's cases have defined it. Others are largely impractical, not to mention unprecedented, in higher education. SFFA's proposed top percentage plans, for example, are based on a made-up and complicated admissions index that requires UNC to access real-time data for all high school students. UNC is then supposed to use that index, which would change every time any student took a standardized test, to rank students based on grades and test scores. One of SFFA's top percentage plans would even nearly erase the Native American incoming class at UNC. The courts below correctly concluded that UNC is not required to adopt SFFA's unrealistic proposals to satisfy strict scrutiny. 2. Harvard's admissions program is also narrowly tailored under settled law. SFFA argues that Harvard's program is not narrowly tailored because the university has workable, race-neutral alternatives, does not use race as a mere plus, and engages in racial balancing. As the First Circuit concluded, there was no error in the district court's findings on any of these issues. Like UNC, Harvard has already implemented many of SFFA's proposals, such as increasing recruitment efforts and financial aid for low-income students. Also like UNC, Harvard carefully considered other race-neutral ways to achieve its diversity goals, but none of them are workable. SFFA's argument before this court is that Harvard should adopt a plan designed by SFFA's expert for purposes of trial, which increases preferences for low-income applicants and eliminates the use of race and legacy preferences.
Under SFFA's model, however, black representation would plummet by about 32%, and the admitted share of applicants with high academic ratings would decrease, as would the share with high extracurricular and athletic ratings. SFFA's proposal, echoed by Justice Gorsuch, requires Harvard to make sacrifices on almost every dimension important to its admissions process and forces it to choose between a diverse student body and a reputation for academic excellence. Neither this court's precedents nor common sense impose that type of burden on colleges and universities. The courts below also properly rejected SFFA's argument that Harvard does not use race in the limited way this court's precedents allow. The court has explained that a university can consider a student's race in its admissions process so long as that use is contextual and does not operate as a mechanical plus factor. The court has also repeatedly held that race, when considered as one factor of many in the context of holistic review, can make a difference to whether an application is accepted or rejected. After all, race-conscious admissions seek to improve racial diversity. Race cannot, however, be decisive for virtually every minimally qualified, underrepresented minority applicant. That is precisely how Harvard's program operates. In recent years, Harvard has received about 35,000 applications for a class with about 1,600 seats. The admissions process is exceedingly competitive. It involves six different application components. Those components include interviews with alumni and admissions officers, as well as consideration of a whole range of information, such as grades, test scores, recommendation letters, and personal essays by several committees. Consistent with that individualized holistic review process, admissions officers may, but need not, consider a student's self-reported racial identity when assigning overall ratings. Even after so many layers of competitive review, Harvard typically ends up with about 2,000 tentative admits, more students than the 1,600 or so that the university can admit. There is no evidence of any mechanical use of tips. Consistent with the court's precedents, Harvard properly considers race as a part of a holistic review process, values all types of diversity, does not consider race exclusively, and does not award a fixed amount of points to applicants because of their race. Indeed, Harvard's admissions process is so competitive and the use of race is so limited and flexible that, as SFFA's own experts' analysis showed, Harvard rejects more than two-thirds of Hispanic applicants and slightly less than half of all African-American applicants who are among the top 10% most academically promising applicants. The courts below correctly rejected SFFA's view that Harvard's use of race is unconstitutional because it impacts overall Hispanic and Black student representation by 45 percent. 
That 45% figure shows that eliminating the use of race in admissions would reduce African-American representation from 14% to 6% and Hispanic representation from 14% to 9%. Such impact of Harvard's limited use of race on the makeup of the class is less than this court has previously upheld as narrowly tailored. In Grutter, for example, eliminating the use of race would have reduced the underrepresented minority population by 72%, a much greater effect. And in Fisher, too, the use of race helped increase Hispanic representation from 11% to 16.9%, a 54% increase, and African-American representation from 3.5% to 6.8%, a 94% increase. Finally, the courts below correctly concluded that Harvard complies with this court's repeated admonition that colleges and universities cannot define their diversity interest as some specified percentage of a particular group merely because of its race or ethnic origin. Harvard does not specify its diversity objectives in terms of racial quotas, and SFFA did not offer expert testimony to support its racial balancing claim. Harvard's statistical evidence, by contrast, showed that the admitted classes across racial groups varied considerably year to year, a pattern inconsistent with the imposition of a racial quota or racial balancing. Similarly, Harvard's use of one-pagers containing a snapshot of various demographic characteristics of Harvard's applicant pool during the admissions review process is perfectly consistent with this court's precedents. Consultation of these reports, with no specific number firmly in mind, does not transform Harvard's program into a quota. Rather, Harvard's ongoing review complies with the court's command that universities periodically review the necessity of the use of race in their admissions programs. The court ignores these careful findings and concludes that Harvard engages in racial balancing because its focus on numbers is obvious. Because SFFA failed to offer an expert and to prove its claim below, the majority is forced to reconstruct the record and conduct its own factual analysis. It thus relies on a single chart from SFFA's brief that truncates relevant data in the record. That chart cannot displace the careful fact-finding by the district court, which the First Circuit upheld on appeal after clear error review. In any event, the chart is misleading and ignores the broader context of the underlying data that it purports to summarize. As the First Circuit concluded, What the data actually show is that admissions have increased for all racial minorities, including Asian American students, whose admissions numbers have increased roughly fivefold since 1980 and roughly twofold since 1990. The data also show that the racial shares of admitted applicants fluctuate more than the corresponding racial shares of total applicants, which is the opposite of what one would expect if Harvard imposed a quota.
even looking at the court's truncated period for the classes of 2009 to 2018, the same pattern holds. The fact that Harvard's racial shares of admitted applicants varies relatively little in absolute terms for those classes is unsurprising and reflects the fact that the racial makeup of Harvard's applicant pool also varies very little over this period. Thus, properly understood, the data show that Harvard does not utilize quotas and does not engage in racial balancing. This opinion has been divided into multiple segments, and we've just come to the end of the third. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.